Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Richard Lee. This week we welcome one of the established pillars of the poetry world and one of its most exciting young stars. Andrew McMillan joins us later to talk about love, childhood and the loss of innocence in his second collection, Playtime. But first, Robin Robertson has been at the centre of British poetry since the 1980s, both as an editor at Penguin, Secker and Warburg and latterly at Jonathan Cape, and also with prize-winning collections of his own. Now it seems he's crossing borders with The Long Take arriving on the shortlist for both the Booker Prize and the Goldsmiths Award for Fiction, which announces its winner later this week. But the poet insists his latest book is a long-form narrative poem rather than a novel, and says it feels like the poetry world has turned its back on him. When he came to the studio to talk with Claire Armistead, Robertson began with a reading from the long take that plunges us into a drive through downtown New York. And there it was, the swell and glitter of it like a standing wave, the fabled smoking ruin, the new towers rising through the blue, the ranked array of ivory and gold, the glint, the glamour of buried light as the world turned round it very slowly, this autumn morning, all amazed. And it stayed there, watching as they made toward it, the truck driver and the young man, under pylons, wires, utility poles, past warehouses, container parks, deserted lots, between the long, oily marshes, landfill sites and swamps, before slipping down under the Hudson and coming up on the other side to find a black wetness of streets, trashed and empty, and the city gone. Well, that's quite an opening. It's it's almost like going into the inferno, going into an infernal region. And it's our first introduction to Walker, the young man, who in that case isn't walking. Tell us about this particular location and why you started like this. Well, I have lived in cities all my life and I've never really written about them. So this was the, the genesis, I suppose, of this book. I didn't want to write about London, which was too familiar. I've been traveling to the States since I was 20. So I thought, well, let's talk about American cities. And I was interested in re-examining the the strange ambivalence of the outsider who comes, like me, uh, many years ago, from outside into the seething metropolis. And that strange mixture of desire and fear, fascination and trauma um, and the deep loneliness of it all but still the kind of glitter and glamour. So um, this is what I wanted to examine and so I took my character to America immediately post-war which has always seemed to be the most interesting time, best music, best jazz, wonderful films and it has always occurred to me that this probably was the beginning of the end of the American dream. Just when it was at its most successful, America started to falter in 46, 47. So 
all this combined to uh, to persuade me that this was the place to set it and to take my character to the three great cities of film noir, New York, San Francisco, but predominantly Los Angeles. So he starts in New York. He starts in New York, and he's he's not entirely healthy. He is originally from Nova Scotia, so a rural, insular, Canadian upbringing, but is sent to war, serves in the Normandy landings and subsequent campaigns through Europe. And he ends the war with catastrophic post-traumatic stress disorder. And he doesn't feel able to return to the rural Eden of Nova Scotia. So he does what many veterans did. He goes into the emptiness, seething emptiness of a city to try and recover himself and find any sense of community and repair. Interesting that you chose to call him Walker. Why that name? Well, as as it says in the book, um, that's his name and nature. Um, he he is a kind of walking camera, and uh, we see these corrupt and corrupting cities um, through his eyes endlessly. And I've been fascinated by American film for uh, well since I could see probably. So this is a homage in many ways to films. And he keeps on his travels, sort of coming across film sets. <laughs> which is which is not as odd as you'd imagine. Um, these films, these which were all really B-movies, were done on the cheap. They were filmed at night in, in the open air because the sets were too expensive. So you would easily uh, run across um, a film being made... At, as you walked out your door. So it, I know it seems, seems like a wild coincidence, but in fact, it happened all the time. You talk about American history is film. Mm. That is its history more than its history is its history. Mm-hmm. Well, it's particularly true of, of Los Angeles, which, as I try and make clear, this is a city with the worst urban planning I've ever come across. And it just seems to be pulling itself down and rebuilding perpetually. And it means that a resident will outlive his his or her own dwelling. And this is not healthy. And Los Angeles was pulled apart for uh, largely to placate the cult of the car. Uh, So all these freeways and highways were built all the way through the city. And the demolition seems to be absolutely constant. So in this book, I've tried to link the, uh, the destruction of the war with the destruction of a supposedly peacetime community. And it's all to build car parks. I mean, there, there's this constant need for, for land. Um, yes, pretty much. To put much. cars rather than people. Yes. I mean, the, the whole thing's ridiculous. Los Angeles is ridiculous. It's built on sand and has to pipe its own water in. But there we are. That It seems to me a symbol of a, of a lot of the weirdness about America that I find so intriguing. Now, this is your first novel, and it was shortlisted and was very much a front-runner, I gather, for, for the Booker Prize. But you've been, you're a sort of well, well-garlanded poet, aren't you? You've won all three categories of the Forward Prizes. What made you suddenly decide to try a novel? Well, 
I still find it rather odd to be calling it a novel. I, I think it's a long narrative poem, and I'm also trying to keep quiet about that. Because <laughs> it's published by Picador Poetry, not by a fiction imprint, for example. Yes, I think I think that's that word poetry is going to disappear slowly from the from the book jackets as it uh, carries on. Of course, the the long narrative poem existed before the novel ever did, and that's how we told our stories. And much finer writers than me, obviously, but the Odyssey, the Iliad, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and so on, these were all narrative poems. Anyway, so we'll call it a novel, but um, it is an attempt, really, to to talk about things that I couldn't encompass in, in the rather narrow confines of a lyric poem. I have written narratives before, but wanted to go and move on to a bigger canvas and try and examine certain things that that I hadn't before. Some bits of it are in prose. Yes, oddly, the, um, the most lyrical sections with the flashbacks are in italic and in prose lines. The propulsive narrative itself is set in broken lines so it's just a, it's useful because it allows the reader to know when to pause at the line breaks so it's it's not it's not the poetry that I would normally write but it has some of the techniques that I use I, I'm very struck by the economy you can say something in two lines that might take another novelist a page to write. For example, a line about, you're talking about fog and you say a hole in the weather. He watched the sun smoke through. And I just thought, oh, that's almost like, it's like a sort of um, platonic vision of what the sun is. It's in reverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he watch, watches the sun, a hole in the weather and the sun smoke through it. And you don't need anything more than that to conjure a foggy morning lifting. How did you decide? Did, were you sort of chipping away and paring away and paring away, or was that how it came out? That's sort of how I write. I can't write sort of long, baggy paragraphs, which is probably just as well. This book would be eight times as long. Um, no, it's how I write, but I wanted to stretch my natural economy uh, into something that was readable as a story. That was the challenge, really. Did you know that it was going to be submitted for the Booker Prize? I didn't know anything. I didn't know it was going to be called a novel. I didn't know it was going to um, be submitted for novel prizes. It seems the poetry world has completely turned its back on me now that I've unwittingly jumped. Blundered into that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that jumped in the evil realm. Uh-huh. What do you mean by that, that they've turned their back on you? Oh, I'm, I'm being happily shortlisted for for these uh, fiction prizes, but not getting anywhere uh, near a, a poetry prize. I think they've all just decided I'm far too successful elsewhere and I'm somehow a quizzling. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote a, a piece in The Guardian recently where, which indicated that you had a slightly fractious relationship anyway with the poetry world. You said that you found it very polarised and it was either incomprehensible or simplistic, I paraphrase. Mm. Well, of course, that's not... A, not exactly true, but in, for the use of uh, uh, the journalism, I, that's what I said. Um, it's more complicated, but it's how, it's how our society seems to be at the moment. It's, uh, there's not, not an awful lot of room for 
slow and careful learning of a trade or a craft. Um, everything has to be instantaneous. Everybody has a voice, everybody has a platform, everybody is validated somehow by that, and the usual channels are now regarded as elitist in some way because somebody else is is standing over the flow of information or creativity. And it's all rather bewildering to me because generally the people who are there uh, making decisions about content, as we now have to call it, are people who actually have a lot of experience and know what they're talking about. But you can't say that now. But you are also one of those people who stands over as you're an editor at Cape of poetry and fiction. And fiction, yes. And some non-fiction, yes. And um, yes, I'm... I'm sort of out of date. But I've always believed that the only thing you can trust is your own taste. And if you tried um, imposing any other uh, frame of reference on on decisions like, will it make money, is it fashionable, that sort of thing, then you, all is lost. So I'm a great believer in people having opinions and having a sense of their own intuition and instinct and following that through just going back to the book you are very critical of America as as we've sort of slightly indicated and I I was wondering the extent to which this is actually a parable that is applicable to now and there's one particular character Billy who's a friend um, who he hooks up with Walker hooks up with every Mm -hmm. now and then who says America has to have its monsters so we can zone them segregate them if possible shoot them they call this patriotism nativism but it's racialism pure and simple and paranoia. Now that America's gone abroad to fight a war, two wars, we're frightened, frightened that foreigners might come over here and do the same to us. That sort of shines through the period and the noir into our current times. Well, I do think the seedbed was there. I mean, America, we have to remember, it was a very, very young country at the end of the Second World War. It was only 170 years old. And it was basically built by cowboys killing Indians and land grabs and genocide and the destruction, the fear of the other and then the destruction of the other. And it seems to always want to return to that position as we now are witnessing across the Atlantic. Um, and it's very dispiriting. And the whole constitution is based on acceptance and, and welcoming of the huddled masses who built America after all, and and now we have exactly the opposite position. They are being ostracized and zoned and expelled. And I think the beginning of it, that corner being turned, was immediately after the war when you had this deep paranoia about communism and the HUAC committees in Hollywood and Senator McCarthy saying the whole of Congress was riddled with commies and and people were driven out of not just their jobs but, but, but out of the country. Then you had Korea, then you had Vietnam, then Iran, Afghanistan, and now Trump. You know, it's a it's it's not implausible to follow a narrative line that leads from nineteen forty six to two thousand and eighteen. 
And the other thing about it is, and possibly this is because you're coming to it from as an European, is the extent to which it is founded on Euro- a European theatre of war. So, mm. so Walker, his memories are of horrible battle scenes in France, basically, and that he's bringing that psyche. I mean, he's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, isn't he? What mm-hmm. we would call now, mm-hmm. but he's bringing that onto the streets of America, and so are all the people he he meets up with on the streets who are equally mm-hmm. distraught and dis- disenfranchised. Yes, he's certainly damaged, but it's also important that he's Canadian. Uh, he's coming from the same landmass, but a rural community just north of the U.S., and so he is, in a sense, ostracised because he's he's the other. And I'm familiar with that, moving from Scotland down to England, having to change my vocabulary because people didn't understand it. So he's he's doubly damned, Walker. He's a, a victim of, yes, European conflict, but also of the internal North American divisions. It's interesting that he comes from Inverness County. And when I saw that for a moment, I thought, oh, oh, is he, has he been Scottish all along? <laughs> it, and it's Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. That's a play on your Scottishness, is it? Or is that, why did you choose Nova Scotia? I chose it for, it was useful to me thematically to, to have him be Canadian from the same physical landmass, speaking the same language, but being other. And there's some play in the book about people being slightly resentful towards him because he was wasn't talking right or didn't eat the same things. And I think that is and was endemic in North American culture, that sense of the other. The other aspect of it which we haven't talked about very much is it, it has photographs. The way it conjures with words and the way it conjures with pictures, it's a, it is a, a hymn to film noir. Mm. Why film noir? Why is this so important to you? Well, I loved those films um, back in Aberdeen. I didn't know they were called something fancy like film noir. But when I moved to London, um, I discovered that all the repertory cinemas were showing these amazing films. And I watched them. I understood what I found so attractive about them, which was embedded in the, the celluloid was this deep sense of urban paranoia, which I was now feeling myself. So I got it. And then I found out that, that, of course, these very American films were not made by Americans. They were made by people fleeing Nazi Germany. These were you know, people like Fritz Lang, who did Metropolis and, and M. He, he was now in Hollywood making The Big Heat with Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham. So they were bringing their, not just their skills and uh, expressionist sensibilities to Hollywood. They were bringing their deep sense of trauma, uh, having been brushed by the, the Nazi death machine and having had a very narrow escape. And is it Fritz Lang who says in the book it's the German expressionism meets the, the American dream? No, that's, that's, a, a, that's that? another... Uh, he's a professor at Berkeley. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, that's a neat little line, but it's true, I think. Um, if you look at what makes film noir so distinctive. It is expressionist camera angles and uh, chiaroscuro, the sharp, daggering black and white, and the sense of the main character as always being an outsider on the run, put upon by larger forces. So it's the right tone and the right imagery for, for this story. 
And there is also underneath the surface, not that far underneath the surface, jazz. Mm. And so, you know, and it records, for example, the death of Charlie Parker as a moment during mm. this period. And I wondered the extent to which you picked up jazz in the way you were writing it. Well, jazz is the soundtrack of, of film noir, a particular period of jazz, uh, pre-bebop. So it's Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster on saxophone, Art Tatum, Bud Powell on, on piano. That sort of late-night, smoky, sad jazz ballads, which I love. And that's the music of this book as well. It's a beautiful book. It's really nicely designed. The front cover I'm just looking at now, and it's a picture of a bridge with tunnels and just a lone man standing on the edge of the pavement and it is like going down into the underworld even that cover did you have a part in the choice of all the images or oh yes I, I designed the whole thing I meddle endlessly with and the, the best thing about the cover is the sign on the the uh, lamppost next to the figure which says keep to right <laughs> which is a stern uh, Injunction, which, which of course the two meanings of right, as any good poet would know. Although it's on the left of the cover. Yes, but that's for the, <laughs> that's, for the that's a warning to the traffic, but it could be a warning to the citizens too. That was Robin Robertson speaking with Claire Armstead. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. When Andrew Macmillan won the Guardian First Book Award in 2015, as long-term listeners to this podcast will recall, the first person he thanked was his editor, Robin Robertson. I can still remember his frank astonishment on the night. Thank you very much. Um, Poetry never wins these kind of things, does it? Which is the first time ever. There's no burden then. Um... But there's, in terms of people I need to thank, most importantly, Robin Robertson, who took a chance on an unknown young lad from South Yorkshire who insisted that he didn't want to use any punctuation. Um, and Robin was all right with that. And if the book is any good at all, it's only because of his kind of patience and his love and his dedication. Um, and so I thank Robin very much for that. It was a chance encounter that brought Macmillan to editor Robin Robertson's attention. I met him at the T.S. Eliot Prize a few years ago, and I was introduced to him as a poet, and I said, well, what are you writing and what have you got? And he said, well, I've got some... I'm working towards a collection. I said, well, I'll send it in. You know, business of being an editor is very interesting because uh, you spend your whole time uh, disappointing people and making yourself miserable, really. But then every now and again, and it really is very seldom, a book comes along, a manuscript comes along that is absolutely thrilling. Uh, and you can, you can just see, this is so fresh, this is so exciting, this is so new, uh, uh, and it gives you faith 
that you know you're in the right job you know you can actually have some fun and so I took him on and, and we worked together and it's been a very happy harmonious arrangement you even let him publish a whole collection without a comma or full stop I know that went very against uh, all my uh, Scottish Presbyterian principles of grammar. Uh, no, I, I could see what he was doing, and you know, he, he may not be allowed to do that again. But you know, uh, this is his first book. Just after the announcement, Andrew Macmillan was still getting used to becoming the first poet to win the Guardian First Book Award in its 17-year history. But what just happened? Like, so we were stood there, and I had in my head a list of people that were going to win. And Max Porter's book is astonishing, so I thought, right, it's going to be Max's, it's going to be The Fisherman that was shortlisted Booker, and then we went down and I was the last one. So I thought, well, being shortlisted is the prize for a poet, because only one other poet has ever been shortlisted. And then it, what? <laughs> what has just happened? That's... But there are so many better books than mine, is the thing. To be, genuinely, for a poetry collection to be shortlisted for this award is... That's the... That's the you know, the falafel, as they say in Barnsley. It seems that Barnsley prevailed once more in the battle over punctuation, as his second collection, Playtime, continues in the same comma-free style as his first, building on the achingly intimate boldness of his debut to explore the mysteries of growing up. When he came to the studio to speak with our chief culture writer, Charlotte Higgins, she began by asking him how he remembers the night he won. I mean, I can't really remember it because <laughs> I'd had rather a lot of free champagne before that award was announced. And then as soon as they announced it, I was kind of carried off to do the podcast. And so it exists as a kind of memento to just how how drunk I was that night. A, a monument to, to joy and drunkenness. Absolutely. Well, we're speaking in the morning this morning. Neither of us has had anything to drink, so neither of us has any excuses. But congratulations on the publication of your second collection, Andrew, Playtime. Before we even open the covers of this beautiful book, I want to ask you about the cover and the title. The cover has got two little figurines on it. Can you describe them and tell me what they are and why they're on the cover of your book? Yep, so we've got these kind of two little porcelain figurines, one that's a kind of little sailor boy and one that's a little kind of footballer, I guess. And I liked them because they look at once both quite creepy but also quite innocent. And I've had them in my study for a long time. My grandma gave me them a long, long time ago, just kind of pulled them out of a, a kind of china cabinet one day and said, oh, have these. And so I kind of carried them around me for a long, long time. And then when I was thinking about what would kind of fit with a lot of the themes of the book, I just kind of caught those out the corner of my eye in my study and took a photo of them on my phone and sent them down to Jonathan Cape. And they were like, yes, that's perfect. Let's use those. So I had to take them down and hand them over to my editor in a sock in a restaurant so as not to damage them because they're quite fragile. <laughs> and what about the title Playtime? Um, I've, I like one-word titles for some reason. I think aesthetically they work really well. But I liked with Playtime this idea, again, of something that was quite innocent, of just kind of kids playing out during a break in school, but also something that perhaps would sound slightly more sexual as well. So the idea of play is something sexual and so a kind of... Not a double entendre, but something that would suggest that kind of innocence again, something that's beginning to shift into something slightly more sexual or slightly more aware of itself. Because the collection as a whole, or certainly the early part of the collection, deals with or seems to deal with this extraordinary period in one's life when you're teetering on the brink between childhood and adolescence. And 
even though you're much younger than me and you're a man, Andrew, it totally brought back those slightly queasy memories of, of being that kind of uncertain, peripubescent yeah. child at school. When everything is uncertain, the body suddenly becomes this uh, undiscovered territory and there's so much kind of shame and embarrassment afoot. I wondered if you could read one of the poems that deal with that kind of subject, Andrew. I thought maybe things said in the changing room. Absolutely. Things said in the changing room. I don't still carry them on my shoulders. I think, probably, they're rested somewhere in the scoop of my clavicle. The time a teacher shamed my obese body as I pulled my shirt over my head. Or the time a new young supply teacher seemed to look at me with pity, as though my body was someone else's misbehaving child. So each time I'd take myself to the edge of the tiled square, away from splintered benches, the whole thing no bigger than a modest corner shop and full of my classmates, the two types of bodies boys that age have, the flabby, baggy ones, the skin, a shirt draped over them they're trying to grow into, or the ones thin as Bunsen flame who seemed embarrassed by their own fragility, all waiting for the body to exert itself over its own boundaries. Some boys knew how to make a performance of their size. My instinct was to hide, not shower, let the acrid stink of sweat and nylon settle on my skin. The ones skinny enough to be able to pretend muscle would take their time, do slow circuits of the group, hold eye contact with everyone. Over half of them have children now, where before I'd think of them undressing for their wives. Now I'm kept awake by thoughts of them as fathers, what they're thinking as they bath their sons, how they will tell them the stories of their bodies, what soft curves they've built to hide the minor injuries of marriage, which parts have grown slower, which parts of them ache as they lift their boy out. Thank you, Andrew. That is really beautiful. But this is also childhood, early adolescence, seen from the perspective of memory and adulthood. Could you tell us a bit more about how these poems that deal with this material came about? Yeah, I think in many ways it was about trying to go back to a time when I didn't have a language for what was happening to me or my body and then retrospectively both at once trying to put a language from a kind of more adult position back onto that but also imagine what that language would have been like if if I'd have had it at that age. And so it's not just kind of looking back and trying to impose a a kind of adult narrative on something but really just kind of look back and and try and somehow write into that discomfort and uncertainty that I was feeling I think particularly when I was kind of coming to terms with the fact that I was gay the first time I even kind of understood that word or heard that word was when someone in school said it to me as a kind of insult like and I kind of just I knew that I wasn't like these kind of other kids in school I knew that I kind of felt something different but I didn't have a language to articulate what that was and so now looking back I realize I probably knew when I was seven or eight years old 
but I didn't have a language to explain that. And so a lot of these poems are about taking what I've got now, I guess, and moving backwards and saying, what would it look like to rearticulate or reconsider or just sit in the awkwardness of these moments, not to resolve them, just to just to stay in them for a while. I remember the first time I read any of your poems, which was when I read Physical, it reminded me very strongly of the experience of first reading Stag's Leap by Sharon Olds, because for me there was the shock of, oh, I didn't think you could write poems about this kind of material, like really moments that have to do with shame, the body, you know, bodily functions you know, in her case, kind of periods and the menopause and, you know, not stuff that traditionally has been regarded as safe territory for poetry with a capital P. It's kind of carving out new territory for poetry, part of your practice or, I mean, is that a conscious thing or what's going on with finding this material about the body, so intimately about the body? I mean, Stag's Leap was a massive permission giver for me and that was such an important book for me, I think, when I first read it. I think it's sublime and like you say, that kind of the ability to just look unflinchingly and just to say, well, I'm going to go there and this is a subject and it demands our whole attention. I think that when I first started writing some of the poems that were in physical, I was taking my cues a lot from these American poets who always see, you know, Mark Doty, Sharon Olds, who always seemed much more candid perhaps than our kind of English tradition which is much more reserved I think to stereotype kind of generally but there was something in once I decided that I was going to write about the body that I always hated those films where like a couple would be just about to kiss and then it had kind of the camera would flip to a, a curtain flapping and then it would cut back to them having a cigarette afterwards and you'd kind of miss the actual interesting part of it and I thought if you're going to write about the body if it's if this is going to be the subject it has to be that. It can't euphemise it. It can't kind of look away from it. It just has to be that in its kind of bare plainness. And that wasn't an attempt to be radical. It was just that was, it felt like that was the most honest way to do it, I guess. Cue poem, I think. <laughs> that was a smooth transition. <laughs> I think it would be great to hear a poem that really goes there and there are quite a few to choose from yeah i was thinking of one of those lovely poems about early sexual encounter yeah. you know youthful sexual encounters first time penetration we needed two attempts the first time was so cold in the unheated loft room of a friend's house i'd moved to at 16 that all we could do was force our bodies close enough to save a little heat. The second time, I planned a little more, a portable heater kicking out a charred dust smell, leading him upstairs, the room artificially hot, stripping off instantly. How practical I was, not really wanting to be touched or kissed or to do anything that might delay what I thought I needed. Heater unplugged, the room dropping colder almost instantly, walking to the bed, kneeling down on it as though praying, and him coming at me with his bare, inarticulate thrusting that couldn't hold off long enough for pain to give way into something like pleasure, and I remember feeling something drip. I've left a present on your back, he said, and I showed him out past the bedroom of my housemate, the bed I'd taken to sleeping in most mornings when she'd gone early to the station. 
I'd set the bath running and keep warm under the covers, still muggy with her presence. One time, I fell asleep, woke to water coming through the ceiling as though the sky had slipped inside the house, and I just lay there, not moving, thinking there was nothing to be done but wait for it to pass through the different layers of the house, hope it might dry out, might still be standing afterwards. Thank you. That's I, it's one of my favourites, actually. The the way that the where that poem moves to, how it where it travels to, I think is absolutely extraordinary. This image of the of the water flooding through the house, this kind of mysterious and very profound image. Of, can we talk about the pronoun I in your poems? Yeah. I mean, there's a confessional quality to them, but, you know, it's not like you're just sort of reworking your teenage diaries. How far can we confuse the I of the poems with Andrew Macmillan sitting here? I mean, there's a real mixture, I think, in this book. I realised when I was putting together this one that actually physical, in many ways, is quite general. It's often looking at the body, but it's quite a generalised body. Whereas in this one, and so the poem that I just read out, First Time Penetration, is just kind of, it's all literally true. But there's part of the timeline, I guess, has been shifted or it needs to be adjusted in order to make it a poem. I like that Sharon Olds idea of things being apparently personal. There are poems in here that are entirely made up, that kind of never happened. There are poems in here that are verbatim, just true. There are poems in here where the setting or the timeline or the order in which things happened had to be moved about to make it make sense as a poem. And so in many ways, I guess, I hope that it doesn't matter too much whether the eye of them is true in that sense. It's just that in the same way that if I was writing about the landscape, I would show a tree. that, I, And it's not that the tree is important. It's just that that tree can show something about a wider sense of the beauty of nature or something like that. And I guess with poems like this that appear confessional, it's just showing something of the self or something that appears true because that's the thing that might say something bigger about intimacy or about love or about loss, which hopefully is what kind of takes it out of just being a kind of like a reworked teenage diary that it's not just kind of a splurge, but it's it's showing something because it says something about something else. And just sometimes that involves putting on the line quite candid stuff about the self. I suppose there's that old chestnut part, isn't there, about the incredibly specific... I mean, of course, it's an old chestnut because it's true, but about the incredibly specific being precisely the thing that allows something to be read by somebody else as true and as, as relating to them, even though their experience is not... You know, can't be mapped onto yeah. that exactly. And it's, it's paradoxical, isn't it? But, we, you know, we would tell writing students that all the time. So I would tell my students that when we start writing, we imagine that the way to let as many people into a poem as possible is to make it as general as possible. So if you're writing about a place, you would describe a very generic place. Or you're writing about a person, you would describe a very generic person. Whereas actually, like you say, the opposite, for whatever reason, is true, that the more the more minutiae of detail, the more place names or shop names in that place that you're describing, or the more physical attributes of the person that you're describing, people begin to see themselves in it. People begin to be able to see themselves or their lives in it in a way that I, I don't know why that is true, but that appears to happen. I'm interested in the quality of shame. It seems to me there is a certain amount of shame in the poems. I mean, shame remembered if not experienced, thank goodness, not experienced now. But mm. I remember um, an artist once saying to me that he felt that his work was truly successful if he felt slightly 
a sense of embarrassment about it almost. I wonder if, I mean, some of the material is so kind of personal, it's so intimate. Is that something that rings a bell? Maybe shame and embarrassment are actually different things. That's rather ill put. But does that ring any kind of bell? I mean, I think certainly for me, if I've written a poem that I know I wouldn't want to show my mum, then I know I'm kind of onto something because that means it's made me uncomfortable. And I think certainly any good writing, which is not to say this is or isn't, but any kind of good writing or any good poetry has to make the writer of it feel uncomfortable as they're doing it. And that doesn't have to be subject-wise. That could just be I'm writing in a different form that I'm used to or something like that. But Mm. there has to be a sense of discomfort. What I've always liked about poetry, both in physical and in, in playtime, was that it seemed to me the poem was a place of redemption, that actually some of this stuff that you might not feel great about that happened in your past or the fact that you might not feel great about your own body but the idea that that somehow becomes worthy of poetry or the fact that it can be crafted into a poem means somehow that it can be redeemed but then during the writing of it that just involved certainly for this one just sitting in very uncomfortable places for quite long periods of time to try and reconjure that but with a purpose to try and redeem it or make something not beautiful but make something kind of better than it had been I guess. I suppose that would lead me to ask about your process of making a poem. So sometimes they they never arrive fully formed I'm not one of those poets that can just sit and go I'm going to write a poem about this and it'll be 20 lines long and it'll end like this and I think if I was it'd probably be easier somehow and I've kind of never really sat down with kind of big projects in mind so kind mm. of book length projects or big ideas that I kind of mm. want to do it's oftentimes waiting for a line to arrive or a thought or a memory from wherever it is they arrive from mm. and either scribbling that down or more and more often as I think I've got more confidence carrying it around in my head mm. and beginning to write it in my head or beginning to just turn over why I'm interested in that and I think one of the things I really learned from Mark Doty who we mentioned earlier was just staying with the poem for longer than it seems like you should because say like um we were saying with first time penetration it ends somewhere with this kind of flooding house utterly kind of different to where it started off and that i don't think that can be manufactured or i'm not smart enough to manufacture that it has to come just from sitting in it and seeing where the poem goes so oftentimes i just kind of sit and not free write but we'll just sit and keep writing and keep writing when it feels like it's got as far as it can go just stay with it for a bit longer and, and kind of push it a bit further But I mean, I write very slowly. I don't write every day. I try and do something connected to poetry every day, which is mainly reading it rather Mm. than writing it. But more often than not now, I'm just kind of carrying it around in my head and and then kind of tipping it out onto the page. So I can can write first drafts now quite quickly, but only because I've kind of carried them around for a bit. And then the editing. And then the editing, which my poems always need editing. I'm really lucky that Robin Robertson at Cape is a very involved editor, and so I've got a good relationship where I can send works in progress and also he can kind of help polish things up towards the end as well so I've got a kind of really good relationship there oftentimes with my editing both of myself and other people kind of my students and things like that it's that about three quarters of the way through the poem there's the line that oh that's actually what the poem's about so you've been writing a different poem in your own head so you've been trying to end it a certain way whereas actually halfway through three quarters of the way through there's kind of this mini revelation in the poem you go oh no that's what it's about so if it's about that then it can't end like that it needs to end a kind of different way and so the editing process is often about there's no way to say this without sounding pretentious the editing process is often about looking at the poem and trying to listen to what the poem is saying it wants to be about or what the poem is now saying that it is 
and then trying to just shape it around that mm. rather than trying to keep forcing it into a mould that you thought it was when you started writing it. And tell me about form. Where are you in relation to form? What's your interest in form? I mean, I guess on a general level, it would be a lot of what I write would be called free verse. Most of it is controlled by syllabics, which shouldn't be really apparent to the reader, but most lines will have a kind of syllabic pattern, which I think just gives them a certain tightness. So I think if you're abandoning kind of rigid traditional form or rigid rhyme, there still has to be something that says to the reader, don't worry, I'm in control. And that might just be as simple as hmm. a certain number of lines per stanza. But for me, kind of when I dis- when it was kind of a process of getting rid of all punctuation and capital letters apart from proper nouns as well, the, there are now three spaces for a comma, six spaces for a full stop, and oftentimes just a syllabic pattern where I will, I will write the first couple of lines of a poem, and it might be eleven nine or it might be ten nine or whatever, and I'll just almost set myself the challenge and go right, that's the that's the form of this poem. Now it's going to go ten nine ten nine. Some of that gets lost slightly in editing when it kind of lines have to be reshaped, but I try and still. I like the idea that you would give something to a reader and they would feel like you were in they were in the hands of someone that was in control, I guess. And clearly you are working within a tradition. And I mean, there are some of these poems that relate quite strongly to you know, traditional forms of poem, the praise poem, for example. Yeah. And there's also Anaphora Penises, a poem that I read out to my partner this morning at breakfast, which I note is a three-line stanza. And Anaphora would be, Anaphora as I understand it, would be using a repeated word. In fact... In this poem, it's like the, the word is not there, but it's understood. Um, yeah. as, as it would be penises repeated, yeah. right? Will you read it? I will. It's a great poem. What I now love about this poem being in this book is one of the very early reviews of this book said, F this guy and his stupid penis poems, which I now like to say and then read this poem. Because <laughs> some criticism is justified. Anaphora penises. I disagree with you on this one small point. The time you said of penises when you've seen one you've seen them all i think you're wrong each one is fingerprint unique each with its own way of being in the world shy or all bravado or statesmanlike it's not size though you can feel each one trying to push itself upright like a schoolboy hoping to be called on to give an answer it's smaller things the smell of each one the way the day can linger there beneath the slim lips of the foreskin, each with its own direction, each with its own personality, its own way of introducing itself, each of them a personal totem for the bearer, each its own low pendulum marking the passing of each year with its own minutiae of successes, changes, health scares, each one a singular importance to each singular man, each treasured and wept for and prone to misjudgment and not to be trusted. Such a fantastic last line again. <laughs> Don't trust the penis. Which, I suppose, last question. Yep. Tell me about the process of making a collection as opposed to a series of poems, what tells you a collection is on its way or the poems might have the kind of shape that means they want to be enclosed between the covers of a book? I think eventually, I think you can only really, or certainly I can only write poems 
kind of one after the other just kind of in in singularity i think eventually sometimes as you're reading them out for the first time if you do a few new ones that are reading you begin to see which ones you're kind of grouping together or you begin to see how they're actually speaking to each other and a really the bit i like about putting together a collection is about three quarters of the way through you can either metaphorically or literally lay them on the floor and you can see where the gaps are and you can begin to say right so if this is the shape of it oh, there's a blank space there and that needs filling with. And you begin to kind of lean into what you think it is that's missing. I've always liked in both books trying to craft something that felt like, not that it had a narrative, but there was some sort of arc. And so I guess in this one, it's from kind of very early childhood, even kind of before being born in that first poem, right through to kind of just being a bit happier or kind of being more resolved or more settled down. And I've always liked that idea that a collection might not just be occasional poems that you could read in any order but it would feel somehow that it had a some arc or some narrative that would pull you through it in the same way that you might read a kind of short story collection or a novel that was andrew mcmillan speaking with charlotte higgins playtime is published by jonathan cape while robin robertson's the long take is with picador in the uk and knopf in the us next week Sarah Perry and Maria Devana Headley go dark and mythic with their powerful new books, Melmoth and The Mere Wife. Until then, subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts and join in the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't, right? Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.